itself. I guess we're recording. Well, Ah, uh, yeah, I can start. We can edit it out too. Um, hopefully. well, this is episode one of Seize the Middle. Uh, we got Noah and Mac here, and Noah had the idea for the name of the podcast, so I'll let him talk about it. But I guess a quick introduction on myself is uh, I don't know. I'm super interested in marketing and online business. And I got started in marketing about three and a half years ago. I got suspended from my university. I couldn't take any classes. Found some, digi found some digital marketing courses online. Uh, was pitching local businesses. I got a, like a local chiropractor to pay me $1,000 when I was suspended. And I was working at a local car wash at the time. So it was like my entire monthly check. And then uh, that kind of, I got hooked on that, just running ads. Were you just running those ads for um, like small businesses specifically or what was it like? Yeah, it was local outside businesses. Your local area. It was, uh, yeah, it was mostly people in my area. I would just find, I'd look up chiropractors on, on Facebook near me and just DM them like, hey, I have a marketing agency. I'm so confident in my services. I'll work for free for seven days. And then you can kind of see if you like it or not. I, cause I was, it got to the point, I was taking this marketing course. And it was about 30 days after I took it, like I, I was taking it and studying it. And after about 30 days of studying it, I kind of was like, what's the, uh, I was like, at what point am I good enough to actually start reaching out to businesses? And it was kind of, I didn't really, I didn't really know what the answer was, but I kind of just figured the best way to learn is kind of just to do it. Yeah. And I saw this YouTube video where this guy's like, if you're trying to get your first client, just say you'll work for free for seven days. and allocate like a hundred or $150, like just get the convince the client to spend a hundred, $150 in ad spend. So to see if they get any leads from it and then convert them into like a retainer. And yeah, that chiropractor, it was, uh, it was interesting because he, he was about an hour away from where I was living in Cleveland. And I DM'd him on Facebook. This was like also the third DM I sent. And I realized it's not, supposed, he, it's not supposed to be that easy. Yeah. Did he immediately say yes? Or did you have to go and like pitch him further? Yeah. So I DM'd him the whole thing where for three, seven days, he's like, how would you get me customers? And I said some random like thing I copy and <laughs> I said like something I copy and pasted like, oh, I'll set up a uh, conversion funnels or all this stuff. And he's like, cool, like come to my office X date. And so I drove out there like an hour and I did all this studying before how to actually, what to do when you have a, a, a sales meeting or stuff like that. It's like, oh, you got to ask these questions. You got to say all this stuff. And I prepared a bunch for it. Then I went into the meeting and I was saying- All the out the window, I'm guessing. What? <laughs> did all the research go like out the window? <laughs> it all went out the window because I basically went in and then I asked him, oh, okay, so tell me about your business and your experience with marketing. He's like, look, like I've done these meetings- I've done all these meetings. Here's what I've done. I did marketing in the past, X, Y, Z, didn't work. I just want to know what you can do. If you put together a plan that makes sense, I'll just pay you up front. No need to do the, the free trial or anything. And I was like, huh, huh okay. Well, it was, it was a super short meeting. And yeah, all that research, I guess, was for nothing. But I was super stressed out. And so I actually I forget how long I was in the office. I mean, it had to be under 20 minutes. So I drove back home. 
an hour and then spend another week like researching how to do marketing for chiropractors, how to run Facebook ads for chiropractors. Came up with this eight page plan on how he'd actually advertise his business. And then I showed it to him. And then he's like, okay, cool. How much would it take to do this? And I said, I said a thousand dollars. And then he just wrote me a check for a thousand dollars. I think I still have the picture for it, but it's kind of funny because, um, yeah, because people in my family, I was telling them, oh, we're going to do this. Uh, like there's 14 year olds making $10,000 a month <laughs> from restaurants, paying them to do Facebook ads and stuff. And uh, they're like, nobody's going to pay $1,000 a month. That's insane. And, but yeah, then he did that. It kind of felt, it kind of felt good. But yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a killer validation. <clears throat> no better validation than actual money, right? Yeah. But, uh, do you think you could have charged him more? Like what? Looking back at it, knowing what you kind of know now, I probably could have if I was more like if you just presented it with more like, I guess confidence. Yeah, or maybe took like a rap share because in the first sixty days he got this uh, uh patient. It was a uh, like a personal injury patient. It was like thirty grand for him because in- insurance paid for it. This girl got in a car yeah. accident or something, and she saw one of our ads. And it was like a thirty thousand dollar treatment plan he got from like from seeing one of our ads. Maybe if he did like a rev share the thing with uh, local business marketing, though. A lot of them, uh, I realized, like unless your your offer is to like be their full on marketing person, you really shouldn't charge more than five hundred to a thousand dollars. Like if I'm just like I was just running Facebook ads and like I run run these ads and then you can call the leads, close them. Um, like for that, like just getting leads for local business, I think um, like 500 to 1,000. And that's like separate from ad spend. Like that's mm-hmm. just a management fee for running it. I think that's, it'd probably be tough to charge more than that unless you get some sort of franchise or multi-location business that can start paying. Um, like, I don't know. I knew a bunch of people that did marketing for gyms and then they get into a franchise and then... um you know, if you charge seven fifty, you get like, oh, if you get seventeen locations on, I bring it down to six hundred or something like that. I also know another guy who uh, he built and sold three agencies, all within like the local Legion space. One was like with a uh, dental, one was car dealerships. Um, I forget what the other one was, and he'd basically charge anywhere from three and a half thousand to five thousand dollars. He would do everything from their search, so uh, like paid social media advertising he'd make these mini wordpress websites and do some local citations and basic seo stuff on it and basically he's like just pay me three uh three and a half thousand dollars and i'll be like your marketing manager and he actually took some of that money and used it for ad spend so we'd allocate like a hundred to five hundred dollars out of that three and a half thousand dollar retainer to mm-hmm. ads to ad spend and uh so it's pretty easy the client just paid one invoice they didn't have to worry about paying the ad network and paying the, the agency. And he had it so systematized where like he'd only be advertising to a 30 mile radius with each car dealership. And it's just plug and play. It's like, uh, you know, deal, dealership near me, like literally copy and paste ad things, copy and paste WordPress template websites. And cause I, I, I met up with him. Uh, that's, this is when I was working with e-commerce companies. And he's like, the only way you can make a lot of money in e-commerce is if you own the brand 
or if you have a huge growth agency and you're taking a percentage of revenue, but he's like, as a solo media buyer, uh, it's super hard to make a lot of money in e-commerce because at some point, like if you do the traditional model of charging like 10% of ad spend at some point, they're not going to keep paying you 10% of ad spend because the margins are so small. Um, he's like, unless you can negotiate some sort of percentage of revenue and, uh, so, and then he's like, the, if you're going to start an agency, local legion is the best way to go because it's so templatized. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, that's what I was doing up until COVID. I was working with local uh, like chiropractors, gyms. And then after COVID, I kind of pivoted to like digitally native companies like you know e-commerce and stuff like that. And then... And in, in yeah. marketing, is it, it like in doing something like that, it seems like it's almost best to specialize. Is that like, right? Like you want to like specialize in something like car dealerships or like chiropractors or something like like I would imagine that would make the selling easier and the template the templatization of all of it is that is that right in thinking? Yeah, in theory that makes that makes that the most sense. Um, and it kind of, I mean it kind of depends if you're going like the agency route or if you're going like the freelance media buyer like the freelance mm-hmm. marketer route. Um, yeah, like for agency, there's, I mean, there's, that's just what this guy recommended is if you're going to do agency, do a local lead gen because you can just charge three and a half to $5,000. You can use a little bit of that money towards ad spend. And he's like, if you allocate $500 towards ad spend, you don't have to spend all of it. He's like, if you got a new client who's never done any ads, maybe he only spends $100 that month. Because all they need to see is a 10% increase month over month to keep paying you. So as long as they see, see a little bit of an increase. Um, and yeah, that for like that model, it makes sense to go super, super localized. Like autodealerleads.com or something like that, where it's all just super localized and the whole pitch is we only work with dealerships. And it's, you have that whole track record. And yeah, like I said, for that, for that template, templatization, it's the easiest if you do that local lead gen model um but i mean there's also on the flip side there's other huge companies that work with like fortune 500 brands and things like that it's just like a much it's like a much different game like i in my mind i see like the local like this guy was telling me about this stuff he basically flipped to them he started these niche local legion agencies to sell them and his last one was doing uh they run a 45 million dollar a year run rate and he had 18 month contracts with clients when he sold it. So it was like the EBITDA had to be pretty crazy. Mm. Um, but yeah, for like the, I think it definitely helps to, to specialize. And I've kind of moved away towards like local businesses and um, working more towards like online businesses. And now I have like, you know, in-house. Well, and like, so now, yeah. now you're like, now you're working with the big dollars for ad spend, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I uh, took a position at Grant Cardone's office. So, which is super cool because, I mean, basically it's an unlimited marketing budget, which is sweet. And so I've been able to get a ton of experience. And especially with live events, you have so many live events. Um, and kind of just like budgeting. Like, because it's one thing to run something that you can run year round. And like you can go through the proper testing, proving and scaling phases of like a, a digital marketing campaign. But if you have like two weeks and 
It's like, okay, we need to get X amount of leads, which could be hundreds of thousands. And you have like, mm. you know, a few million dollars in ad spend in, in budget and you have to plan it out in a, you know, a two or three week period. That's where I've learned, incre- increased my skills a lot. Cause it's like, okay, if I have this much budget, here's how, here's how much that is a day. Here's the budget allocation per ad network. Then within that, here's how many campaigns I can actually set up due to like the proper budgeting ratios to feed the algorithm enough data, which not a lot of people talk about. Um, it's like the daily budgets you have actually determines a lot and how many campaigns and how you actually structure the campaigns. Because if you don't, um, like if your budget spread too thin, you're not going to give the algorithm enough traction to, to, uh, you know, to get enough data. But yeah, that's what I've, uh, yeah, getting a ton of, ton of experience and especially with the, the live events and, and then that planning where it's super like, like boiler room, like, okay, X amount. And it, but it's, but it's pretty cool. Um, I like it, but yeah, I definitely think the, um, yeah, like the, the legion, the local legion play, I don't know, just due to how the, the economy is right now, I think a lot of local businesses are like holding onto their cash right now. So I think it's, Probably, if you are going to go that route, probably wait a few years and probably focus more on like a, being like a freelance media buyer, focusing on like people have online businesses, like info products, SaaS, um, coaches, people have coaching programs, but yeah, not e-com just because our margins are so small. And, and yeah. Honestly, like Twitter is a pretty right place for that too. Like oh, with, yeah. you, with you starting to post on Twitter more. I think you could almost seek out some of these medium to bigger size creators and do some of that stuff for their products too. Yeah. There's a ton of, um, yeah, there's a ton of guys getting clients off of, off of Twitter. I've kind of, I'm pretty honed in on, on Cardone stuff just cause there's so mm. much, um, stuff I'm doing with there and there's so much opportunity for growing and there's so I've kind of paused on like looking for uh you know opportunities like on, on, on my own stuff because I, I I kind of like the in-house position where it's it, t- it give you a ton of freedom and I don't know with working with clients is a whole thing where like you kind of have to I don't know. You have to explain. Sometimes you have to explain marketing, why you're doing all this stuff. Like if they don't really understand it. So. Selling, selling too. like selling gets exhausting in my, like from my experience. Yeah. But if you do it, you know, I, I, I agree. Like, it, like it, if, you don't, does. if you don't have like a almost system, systematized, like standard operating procedures for like how you're going to sell, you're kind of like always, you know, group forcing the sales mm-hmm. not in the way of like oh you're like selling and not providing value but like there's no rinse and repeat you know for something like that and it gets really exhausting yeah dude i mean i know some people who do like reverse sales process like, what do you what's, mean by what, that what i'll be like what's your sales process i know a guy that charges twenty five thousand dollars a month for market like he's a solo media buyer he charges twenty five thousand dollars a month that's more than like that's like double some of these agencies. We have a 10 person team on it. He's, he's a solo dude and his sales process is he's like, I basically tell a client to screw off three times in a row. And if they come back a third time, that means they're worth it. And it's kind of a, it's kind of funny. Cause it like, 
he says when he tells somebody, like for example, it'd be like if you were to come to me, be like, Matt, can you run my ads? I'll say, Hey man, like I'm super expensive and I'm I'm booked out the next two weeks, but I can refer you out to some of my people in my network. Something like that. And he's like, if somebody comes back to you two more times, they're probably worth taking on. But he said it's funny because when he when he does do that, people are want to work with him even more. Mm-hmm. When you like kind of push him away like that. Because everybody wa- everybody wants to work with the person who's booked out. Everybody wants to work with the oh wait. Everybody perceives price with value. Um, and that's something that I I mean it's a hard shift to make in your head, especially when I was starting out early. It, like there's all this like psychology into it too, and like who like who controls the frame. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times it's like, okay, why are you better than this person? Or like, why should I trust you to do my ads? And whenever it comes to like, why are you, th- whenever it comes to that frame, it's probably going to be a bad working relationship anyway, even if you do end up closing them. Because from the start, the whole dynamic is, okay, you need to prove to me why you should run my ads versus like this guy flips it on his head. Hey, like, why should I choose to work? Why should I run ads for your business? I can run ads for anybody. Um, why should why should you pay me twenty five thousand dollars for me to run for me to run your ads? And it's kind of a weird shift, but um, I think if you do selling like that, it kind of becomes fun. But I mean, there's this whole thing where you have to have the confidence enough to do that. And he has a very good uh, he's pretty like notorious, I guess, of the, those who those who do know him. So you have to have the credibility and also the confidence in order mm-hmm. to do that. But you have to That's, have a good control of like the supply side of things too. You know? Yeah. Like if you, if you don't have a ton of leads on your own, you can't, like, you kind of got to take whatever business you can get. Yeah. Well, that's why I uh, like Cardone says you got to keep your pipeline full. He's mm-hmm. like, you got to keep, keep growing your, your pipeline. So you don't have to rely on one opportunity. Cause I've got into that in that, thing too like i set a meeting and it's like the only meeting i said all month and then you get super desperate and people can sense it and then you end up you know maybe taking on a client for you know you maybe charge less or taking on a client that you shouldn't because you know for whatever reason i mean there's a ton of reasons why mm-hmm. you shouldn't you know you can't work with somebody or you shouldn't work with, with somebody but yeah it's uh it's interesting, but yeah, I think a lot of it roots from like confidence, but at the start, it's kind of tricky because you don't have confidence and it really wasn't until like the last 12 months where I really got a ton of confidence in running ads and really just having enough confidence to kind of push back on some things and also, you know, offer different perspectives or have enough experience now to actually know that you know, have thing have some of your, like, you know, whether something works, what works and what doesn't work. Like, that's really what mm-hmm. I, my whole goal is on. When I, I made a tweet about this. My whole goal with learning stuff now is to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Um, and that just comes through like experience and just testing different things. Yeah. I, I kind of view, I view it a lot the same way too. It's like um, what provides utility, right? it's the, the econ brain in me, but it's like what, um, ways of thinking or what actual skills like provide utility, like they're useful and anything that's like not useful is kind of just not worth the effort or the time. Right. 
what's it a, is. Wait, what's a, like an example of uh, something that's not useful? Are you talking about like skills? Yeah, I mean, I think, think about it. 99% of all effort is wasted. It's like what Naval talks about. And when you think about it in, in that terms, you're like, okay, what is the 1% of things that are like actually useful? Yeah, it's like the Pareto. Yeah, yeah. You, you, like most of the stuff you did in school, wasted. Like every paper, all of it. But the, the 1% of things that like, school actually provides utility for is like teaching you how to like structure, like teaching you time management, teaching you, you know, what hard work is, all of that. So that like, as you continue to find more and more of those skills and stuff like that, that are useful, right? It's like you taking that digital marketing course was probably more useful than you taking a marketing course in college. But like the marketing course in college gave you the foundation, the precursors so that when you did do that, it, you like could build on top of it, right? Yeah, no, that's so true. Yeah, that that first marketing course, it didn't actually, it wasn't really that effective in regards to like creating effective marketing campaigns, but it showed me what's possible. Like there was a little mm-hmm. testimonial from a 14 year old who got paid $10,000 to do marketing from a restaurant. And I was like 19 or 18 or 19 at the time. And I was like, okay, 14 year old can do this. I think I can do it too. So it was more so like the possibility of it. And then, yeah, that's super true with like a college as well. Like, yeah, the biggest thing I learned was time management, especially if you're working throughout school, I can actually manage everything, your relationships, you know, with friends, family, girlfriend or, or boyfriend, um, school, any extracurriculars, like clubs, like how you can actually fit that all together. So yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah. When I was, uh, first, like when I was a freshman, I was I was like, why am I even in school? All these people are saying you don't need to you don't need to go to college. All these people online are saying you don't need to go to college. I'm glad I went for that reason to because I learned time management, and I think it's a great networking opportunity too if you're going to the right school. Yeah, that's I mean that's my thing. I I don't neither one of my degrees really qualifies me for anything unless I want to go become an economist. What are your degrees? Like, I got I get. I, studied uh business economics and then startup entrepreneurship like i co-majored but it's literally like neither one qualifies me for anything right but i chose economics because it allowed me to like dive deeper into math and i'm i hate math right but it's a i mean if you can do the agrarian functions like if you can do all the way up to like calc three right when it comes to something like finance, it's pretty easy to like understand what the numbers are actually telling you and how you can you need to manipulate the numbers in a certain way. Right? When it comes to like looking at data for, you know, on a marketing dashboard, you can sift through the statistical like insights and pull out like the actual like statistical like um confidence and know what is like signal versus noise a little easier. So it's like, I guess, I guess it was, I was like, I guess if I have to like study something, I might as well study the thing that's going to like help me across domains. Right. Yeah. No, I get exactly what you mean. And I guess, uh, people listening, but Noah and I went to Miami university. That's where we met yeah. for this venture capital, uh, fund. One of the only student venture capital funds in the world. Slight, fl- <laughs> slight flex. Um, but one exit, one exit too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's uh 
that's interesting. That's what I was thinking too. Like when I was going into school, I was thinking more of like the, like you said, the utility of it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking finance. I was leaning towards finance because my senior year of uh, high school, I shadowed this one CEO of like a steel manufacturing, or like a, uh, I know it was like it was an engine repair um, factory, and they did over a billion dollars a year. It's a very old school business, but. And the CEO used to run a roofing business before. And he was a very interesting guy. And literally, he would always, uh, I shadowed him for a week. And literally, most of his job was either, you know, talking to people because it was a factory, everything was in person, or he was literally just looking at like PL. And it was, it was interesting because I was, I'd sit with him and he'd be going over the PL right before like the Monday meeting. And the, I guess, information he was able to discern from just looking at a PL statement was super well i just never thought you could get like that from looking at yeah. numbers like for example like oh labor costs have increased 10 percent this month than last month so that means we're probably not following our standard operating procedures as effectively so i need to talk to the factory manager to see how we can follow our sops more effectively to keep our labor costs within line just like things like that and um so that's why I thought finance would be a good thing to to do. And then I switched after I took the first finance class. I was like, okay, this is pretty, this is pretty intense. And if, since I was suspended from school, I wanted to graduate on time without, without, I didn't want to take an extra, an extra semester. So I wanted to graduate within three and a half semesters. And my advisor said finance would be pretty intensive to squeeze into that time frame. And I was working on top of that. So either like marketing or any of the other ones. But for that reason, I didn't think the marketing degree had a lot of utility. So the information systems. Mm-hmm. But what were yeah, you well, going to say? Uh, at, at a high level, like C-suite executives and all of that, right? They literally just care about P&L. Like, mm-hmm. And then it's like our job as like entry level like people to like do a lot of like the actual legwork. Mm-hmm. Collect all that information and like pass it up the chain. Yeah. And I think that's like the biggest thing that I've realized is like the the classic principal agent problem, right? Stems from like thinking strategically. Like it's like the more we can think strategically, like as if we were in like the C-suite level, the better, right? Because it's, you're thinking from a way higher level and you're reading between the lines and able to derive like more from your work. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, uh, I forget who said this. I don't know if it was Sean Puri from My First Million, but he's like, figure out how to make your manager's job easier. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so if you can make your manager's job easier, or like, I don't know, maybe it was, I think it was like, figure out how you can make your manager look good. Yeah, that doesn't, I was literally going to, I was going to follow it up. I'm like, uh, Robert Greene has like the 48 laws of power. And one of the laws of power. Oh, maybe that's what it was. One of the laws of power is like, never outshine the master. Mm. because if you do that right people will start like your boss will make it harder for you to like do things mm-hmm. because if every time you do it you always like make them look bad why would they want you to do the important work yeah that that's interesting and uh, yeah if you make your your manager look good then i don't know maybe you'll you'll get more opportunities or even if you don't take credit for it like you make I, that's that's how I imagined it. Like you make your mm-hmm. manager look really good to the rest of the company, but then the manager knows that like you helped them out a lot, but nobody else really knows. So then maybe they give you. Um, well, and then yeah. when when it's time for like raises and promotions, 
mm-hmm. stuff like that. Who's the person that refers people for that, right? Yeah. It's not like the CEO, it's your manager. Yeah. Yeah, that's not so what but, I kind of thought about that. But it's it's a it's interesting because one of my friends who's like a chief of staff was explaining this to me and he was like, You have to also be really careful because sometimes you'll pigeonhole yourself and which like you're the only person that can do like that specific job. So if they want to promote you like out of that job, it makes it really hard for them that because they know like nobody's going to produce that same quality and right. It's like an important job. So now you've like pigeonholed yourself from actually getting a promotion. I don't know though, because I honestly think that gives you more leverage. Uh, It does. It does. If you, if you know how to like use it correctly. Yeah. Like I, I have a, I have a cousin who, who, started at a company and uh and then they did a bunch of MAs and I think he was the one to analyze he helped I forget exactly what his role was but it was something where he helped them acquire other companies and it started with like 10 employees and they grew to 400 but he was the only person that like knew their ERP I think it was like their ERP system they he mm-hmm. was the only person who like knew that like the back of his hand and like nobody else in the company knew it because he was there from the from the beginning and so he just had so much leverage like hey guys like I want to take a month off and like, be like, yes, sure, sure, sure. Or like, yeah, I want, I want, I want to get paid X amount. Or that, you know, and it just gave him so much leverage over it because he was such a vital person. Mm. I think, I think he's still there. A um, lot of the leverage is like you have to know, you have to like clearly define what it is you actually want, right? Like you have to, you have to walk in with like almost a specific dollar amount, or like you have to like know exactly what job position you want oh, to like ne- negotiating. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What like to to leverage the leverage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I also think, uh, I guess when it comes to that, the ability, it's like that. Was it, is it Robert Greene? Like the person who has the most power is the one. I know this is the art of the deal. Maybe we will get some flag for referencing the art of the deal book, but. Uh, Something like the person who has the most power is the one who's willing to walk away. So that comes down to like that sales thing too with like clients. Like I don't need you. So like I'm mm-hmm. like I'm willing to walk away and say like, hey, I'm super expensive. I'm booked out. If you want to pursue that further, okay. If not, it's okay. Because I think that's something like that too, where you can kind of like my sister was she's in the phase where she's like accepting a job offer right now and i'm like okay you can pin them against each other and you can say you can say uh i don't know like i thought i was trying to help her with ways to kind of leverage it but yeah i think the which that's also hard to do too is like having the confidence to i think it's it's tough to do something like that because we have so little leverage no i know i'm sure you've like like there's a big difference between a full-time job where like your company's like upskilling you and like all of that versus like a four month internship where like you're pretty much just like internships, like you pretty much just do busy work and like the entire, like you haven't even collected enough scope of the company usually, unless like you're doing something that's like basically a full-time position. Yeah, I do. I do think you can, there's way, like, I think you literally have to brainwash yourself. Like, I don't know, maybe this is the wrong way to do it, but I think if you actually brainwash yourself or maybe you just have so much confidence that you can provide so much value to the company. Okay, if you pay me a hundred grand, I'll give you a million dollars in value in return. Like 10X the value. You just, 
I don't, I don't know if it's brainwashing or maybe in that form of the internship, you just did so much where, but yeah, like I said, I know it's tough. And because I know when I was starting out, it was super tough because like the experience and also like the, so yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe it only comes from experience. Maybe it's not possible to like brainwash yourself. I, I think though, like, I think the strategy of like preeminence is a good one in this like scenario where you can literally be like, you know, you go into negotiate your job, like salary for a first time job. You're like, we'll talk in six months or we'll talk in like a year. And you basically like, like divert all negotiation until like you're able to like, you know, collect up, we'll say like different cards, basically. Mm -hmm. You're able to start stacking the cards in your favor. And then like you literally come in like after like you've predetermined like when you're going to negotiate you've made like that hard commitment of like, you know, six months, we'll, we'll talk. Then mm-hmm. you, you stack up all your cards for six months and you're like, Hey, remember, like we said, we were going to talk in six months. Like, can we sit down and like negotiate now? Right. Yeah. I think that's the best play for like a first time job in a way. It's, it's like definitely preeminence. Yeah. And another thing with that too, I was, I was thinking like a lot of those big companies, they have such a huge hiring pipeline that you probably can't even get away with some of these like cheeky things like, hey, like I have this company. Like unless you are really a standout person and yeah. you made such a huge impact and like whatever um related whatever experience you had with them before. I also um know like somebody uh I think I've also heard like if you can't negotiate the salary, like at least negotiate the signing bonus. And apparently in some cases, especially at the more corporate companies, you can negotiate a higher signing bonus. Like the from what I've heard from like a managing partner at a big a big fork consulting company is that uh like the signing bonus is something that's way easier to negotiate if you can't. I, I think um, like a, a relocation yeah. bonus as well is something like you could almost mm-hmm. yeah especially if you're going to like a big city to loop in or something. Yeah, yeah no, because some of these companies they I see like it, it'll be remote. Like I said, my sister's looking at jobs and uh, like some of these jobs are like completely remote, but it's like the flat, it's a flat, like there's no, uh, I don't know what you call it. Like it's not dependent on, on your ge- geographic location. Like if you live in mm-hmm. New York or if you live in San Francisco or if you live in Columbus, Ohio, or like it doesn't really, so yeah, maybe a relocation bonus, like, hey, I'll come to X city, I'll go in the office, but since living costs are higher, can I get an extra this and and the one thing with the signing bonus too is a lot of these companies do the clawback as well where like if you don't stay x you'll have to like pay that money back so i guess if you do negotiate a higher signing bonus if you did want to leave that means you'd have to pay that back again um yeah that, that was just something i thought of of i guess a con well, with the remote work like you like one thing that i've seen is like people are starting like our arbitrage their their salaries like what do you mean? salary in san francisco because san francisco is like one of the highest cost of living right mm-hmm. versus in oxford ohio mm-hmm. um are two very different like cost of living mm-hmm. and so therefore like companies have to pay differently if you're going to take the salary that somebody makes you know in cincinnati and try to have them live off of that 50,000, 60,000 average in San Francisco, 
Like they just can't do it. They literally can't do it. So mm-hmm. like they had to pay a lot more in San Francisco. And if you get a job for a company there, right. And it's remote. And then you go live in Oxford, Ohio, like you're arbitraging your actual salary and yeah. your money theoretically making even more money than well, what you, you, you could even do it. Well, like if you read four hour work week, the whole premise is like the geo arbitrage. You make money in dollars, yeah. you spend it in pesos. Like you go down to South America, Argentina, where the cost of living is a thousand. Like if you have a thousand dollars US, you're li- living like a king. So like that's, <laughs> that's even like a step above where like there's geo arbitrage in the US. But if you go a step further and go to like Central or South America, even like when I was in Spain, like I met this guy in Madrid who worked at EY. He works at EY. He actually has a podcast now too. Um, but his, he lived in downtown Madrid with 700 euros a month for a, like a one bedroom apartment in downtown central Madrid, which is like one of the biggest cities in Europe. And it was only 700 that's like look seven hundred dollars. So even like places in Europe, you can still even do that kind of geo arbitraging. Doesn't have to be like mm-hmm. Central or South America. But also, what I'm noticing, some of those big companies also require you to be in the U.S. Uh, like my buddy works at Deloitte, and he can go fully remote, but he has to stay in the U.S. And I, I mean, they must do some sort of IP. I mean, it's probably not ethical to to sign an agreement that you'll be in the U.S. and go somewhere else, but. So I think that's more of like if you have a flexible company or maybe if you're like a freelancer, then that you can even get more geo-arbitrage by going to a country where you can... Uh, well, that's like a whole nomads money. list, right? Yeah. It's like they, the dude literally has like calculated the cost of living in like hundreds of cities. And you can just like scroll through and look at all the cost of living, weight, all like the opportunity cost of, you know, being in Argentina versus Portugal versus... Thailand and just decide where you want to go. Yeah, dude. Nomad list is sick. The Peter Peter Levels. I don't know if you listened to his my first million interview, but it was I haven't. It was sweet. Um and then now he's building an AI uh uh it's like an A something like AI profile picture generation where like you submit 15 photos of yourself and then you can it'll pump out like AI photos of you, like in a night, like, like a night on a horse or like just random, uh, or like you were climbing a mountain or the oldest random, or like an elf <laughs> version of you. But that's a, he's a, he's a smart guy. Follow him on Twitter. I think he's on his way to it's five. Levels. levels IO, I, right? Yeah. Levels. I, uh, I think he, he's trying to make, he's on the path to like 5 million a year right now. And he's a, a solo programmer. Um, super. And if you listen to like his his routine, it's super interesting. Uh, and I, like now he's doing slow matting, like rather than he'll he'll stay in a spot for like six to seven months and then he'll go somewhere else. I think that's gonna be what it takes over. Like mm-hmm. I think that's gonna be like a thing. Is like I think people will stay in locations for a couple months to like a year and then move because it's so disruptive to your habits, right? Yeah, that's what I noticed. Like when I was in Spain for two months and the last two weeks, I was going even crazy and go to a different spot every three to four days. And after that, I was like, dude, I need to get back. I was like, this is, this is, I was like, this is too crazy. And I kind of came up with some rules to follow next time I do that, which is like only travel on the weekends because especially if you're working, well, I mean, yeah, being a nomad is like you're working remote, 
So like it was just way less stressful to travel on the on the weekends because you don't have to worry about okay, do I have a call? Am I going to miss this meeting? What happens if the, if this gets delayed or whatnot? And also like staying at least seven, but ideally fourteen days in a spot for that reason, mm-hmm. so you can actually get some sort of a routine and get in some sort of a habit. But yeah, he even took it. He's like, yeah, so now people are doing six to seven months, and then yeah, I think that's definitely more sustainable. I agree. Should we should we wrap it up here? I think we're going yeah. on an hour. Yeah, we could uh we could wrap it up. I know you didn't really get to give a an introduction, so we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I'll just I'll wrap it up by like I guess talking a little bit about the concept of like seize the middle and where that comes from, and then we can just we'll 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 workshop an outro, and we need to workshop an intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll but, have to figure it out. Um. Really, like, I guess when it comes to this, like, podcast, it's, like, the brand of Seize the Middle. It comes from, like, chess, right? I don't know. It's, like, something we talked about, but for the people, like, listening. And in chess, like, your goal is to control the middle of the board because it maximizes the opportunities that you're able to carry out against your opponent. And when it comes to, like, the game of life, right, it's, like, we're trying to help outline of different levels of business. Uh, so I'm in product right now and Mac is obviously marketing. Um, so it's kind of the two fundamentals of business. Like you have the product, which is what you need to make money and capture value. But then you also have to like have the distribution of marketing and sales. And so we're really trying to like, I guess, just talk um, like we would normally do. Right. But hope provide insight for people to really seize the middle on whatever their career professional opportunities are so they can maximize like their moves and the game of life Love so it. yeah we've been meeting every or we used to meet be clear it's kind of been on and off but we thought why don't we record this and just make a podcast yeah well yeah. so sounds yeah. good i guess that's that's episode one and uh we'll yep. we'll wrap it up and look forward to uh episode two